anything that a Jew does to another Jew is, is chewing them. Chewing them down <laughs> or up or sideways or any direction. That- this is called your cold open. This is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. I'm your host, Mark Oppenheimer, joined as ever by tablet deputy editor Stephanie Butnick. Happy September. And tablet editor at large, Leah Leibowitz. Chodesh Elul Sameach. And this week, we will be joined by two Jews, Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs. He'll be here in his rabbinic persona and in his Lordy noble one. persona. By the way, his... are these the two Jews you were referring yes. to? <laughs> Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs will be returning to Unorthodox to talk about his new book about just a little topic, just a little a smidge of a topic, just morality. How can we be more moral? How do we save the world? As this is his second visit to Unorthodox, it is officially the second coming of the Lord. It's like second day Rosh Hashanah. Wow. The first one, everyone's there for. The second one, the elite show up. The Elul elite. And we are joined by Gentile of the Week, Holly Huffnagel. She's a real person. She's a Gentile. And she's the American Jewish Committee's newly appointed United States Director for Combating Anti-Semitism because, frankly, Jews have been trying to combat anti-Semitism for several millennia now, and we're not doing a very good job. (laughs) We need some help. I would have loved to have been there in that meeting where Holly Hafnegel was appointed to be like, guys, just spitballing here, but let's go a totally different direction. (laughs) How about a non-Jew? How about someone who could actually stop anti-Semitism and be like, you know what, Chuck? That's a really good idea. By the way, watch her end it in like two and a half months. Like watch anti-Semitism disappear by October. She She's is like, guys. very organized. She'll just lick the whole thing. It'll just, done. Kaput. Stephanie sat down with Holly Huffnagel. You did that interview and I think Liel was on the beach. Are you back from the beach yet, Liel? What's, where, where do you situate yourself today? You know, it's a, I'm back on the Upper West Side and it's kind of, I think, astonishing for someone who literally grew up on the beach. Like, this is where I spent almost every day of my formative years. For one of my background, I, I really deeply despise the beach and everything to do with it. By the way, after I really deeply despise, literally any word could have followed that, and I would not have been surprised. <laughs> Beach. Beach is like a pretty innocuous one. Liel has hate to spare. Listen here. Once we've come up with the concept of a swimming pool, right? Once we've perfected that, the conversation is just insane to me. He's like, hey, man, do you know how we really love sitting next to like a nice body of water? Yeah, that's cool. (laughs) Hear me out here. How about instead of like having all the furniture here, we have to carry our own furniture. It's like, that's okay. How about we have to carry it through sands? Like, I'm listening. How about, (laughs) get this, the water has super annoying waves that you could drown in and fish and schmutz. And here's the PS de resistance. How about we take the bathroom and put it like three miles away from where you are at any given moment. I mean, the whole history of human civilization has been one continuous quest to be closer to a bathroom. The beach is just an insane assault on on the very, you know, tenet of civilization. You've been truly Americanized, it seems. I feel like the like Herzliya child in you has officially like it's over. Dr- drowned. You are an American. <laughs> you want your like big box stores. You want your Slurpee, and you want your bathroom really close to your body of water. You know what? I'm gonna pull an Oppenheimer and go totally controversial for our listeners. I'm gonna say <laughs> swimming pools, Jewish, the beach, Goyish. Goyish. There's only one interaction in our whole people's history with the beach, and it's like a seat traumatically, miraculously splitting apart so that we don't have to be on the beach. To be fair, it was a good interaction. It ended in our favor. (laughs) 
and we okay. got closer yes. to the bathroom as a right. result. Correct. But fair. the whole point was like the beach escaping us. Like it was us being warned not to be on the shores. Of Liel, the you ignorant slut. <laughs> First of all, you didn't even make the strongest case you could have for your side. However, tortured and twisted your side is. You didn't even bring up the great white sharks. I mean, you could have brought up the fact that everyone's afraid of sharks on the beach right now. No, that's a plus for me. Right. Okay. <laughs> so I'm just saying, the second thing I'll say is like, I think you're misreading the situation. The whole ocean is a bathroom. I mean, it's where sharks go to the bathroom. It's where whales go to the bathroom. It's where crabs go to the bathroom. It's where my son David, age two, on the day that this episode drops, goes to the bathroom. So whatever, just Nobody can see underwater when you're there. Yeah, but then you have to go into the water and the water's too cold and it's so annoying. Number three, when I was talking recently about my desire to take up surfing, which is a whole thing that I haven't talked about enough with the J Crew, but I'm I'm obsessed with learning to surf. It comes from reading William Finnegan's book, Barbarian Days. Of course it does. And Daniel Dwayne's book, Caught Inside. And it's just a lot of, I've read a lot of surf lit in the past couple of years. You said to me, oh, I surfed. I surfed like every day when I was growing up in Herzliya, the waves surf in me. Herzliya, the waves. Uh, I was holding a gun in one hand and yeah. a pita in the other as You I were surfed. literally a surf Nazi. You were riding on the waves with your <laughs> AK-47, like mowing people down on the shore. And now that, that was actually your unit in the army. You're selling that all out? Like that was, that's your heritage, man. Like we, we resettled the Holy Land so that Jews could be surfers. Stephanie nailed it. I've become too Americanized. Give me a swimming pool and an Arnold Palmer, and I've I've arrived. And a frappuccino. <laughs> so look, I actually will concede that Jews do love swimming pools, and I will say that in my own family, Sid does not like the beach, and my mom doesn't like the beach, and Sid's parents don't like the beach. They prefer pools. I am a beach guy. Stephanie, you are the tiebreaker here because you sometimes spend time in Florida. You sometimes spend time on Long Island. You are you have much beach and pool proximity. Settle the tie for us. Guys, I'm a girl of the suburbs. I am team pool. I don't really have uh, a strong feeling against uh, beach, but uh, I am I am of the pool. The pool is my people. Amen, Stella. All right. Um, I will say, having no no one has asked about me, I am, I don't know if you could see, still in the closet. I have not gone anywhere fun. Um, I appreciate you guys talking about things like uh, beaches, which sound really nice. Um, but yeah. I just feel like I'm inching ever closer to all the luggage that's above me crashing on my head. I say this every week, but I think it's getting truer and truer. The main the main culprit, I think, is the fencing bag that's up there. Because <laughs> I don't know if I was talked about this a lot, but I did last summer take up start fencing again. Came to a screeching halt in March. But I was going every week to fence with my old coach, Misha. And it was amazing. And now the only remnant I have is a bag that's about to fall on my head. But I will say... Maccabia Games. Are you going to fence? Summer 2021. Wait, are I you? I feel in... like I want to, I don't know how I can do this. I have, This is early stage of my thinking. I want to apply. And then I think we go, we both like, we cover it and I fence in it for America. A better idea. We all apply and we all have to get in. Mark, surfing. surfing. Liel? Uh, either shooting or boxing. Okay. Stephanie, of course, is the only person with any real chance of any sort to be in this thing. So so the interesting thing that my coach was telling me, he's like, you know, here you're kind of screwed until you're 40 because there's 40 and over. But when you're under 40, you, you fence with like the college fencers who are at the peak of their game and the Olympians. You, you could take but them. I looked it up. I'll be 35 at that time and I will be in the 35 and up. So I actually have my best chance at, of ever getting another like medal win anything at fencing then. Oh my God. If they have boxing 35 and up, I I'm sorry. I'm going to kill any Jew 35 and up in my category. I think this is actually summer 2022, if I'm doing the math in my head right. So we have even more time to train 
fundraise, do the, like the montage where we get fit, <laughs> get our uniforms. I want to say something even more controversial than Liel's take that swimming pools are Jewish and beaches are goyish. Is there something a little sad? I, I almost hesitate to say this, but I don't. Is there something a little sad about the Maccabi Games? Like <gasps> the Jews need their own no, Olympics. Like, we're not good you, enough sir. to do the real Olympics. No, these like, are the true titles that matter. Can we beat our own people? Like we know that we could beat the Gentiles. Right. This is your self-hating. This is your self-hating. No, I'm not self-hating. I'm saying like, come on, Mark Spitz showed we can do the real Olympics, right? We've like talked smack about it before and people called us out and I stand I by their corrections and I, because I want to go, so I'm not going to say anything bad about them. I think it's nice. Nothing would make us happier than to accompany you on your journey. So that's the top news of the Jews this week is that Stephanie Butnick is in training for the Maccabi Games. Less important news of the Jews this week. Uh, we will start with the conventions. Obviously, whoever you are in the J. Crew, you've heard a lot about the Democratic and Republican conventions. Uh, there's little that we can add to the coverage, but we do fear that you've missed a couple of the most important bits of news. One thing is that Hunter Biden, the president's son, so ooh, that was a Freudian slip, the presidential candidate Joe Biden's son <laughs> has <laughs> apparently uh, has a tattoo of the word shalom. Do you know why? Well, he's married to a Jewish woman, yeah, right? I mean, this is the greatest story of all time. Okay, sorry. Take, take it sorry, away, Stephanie. I mean, I may be overhyping it with the greatest story of all time. <laughs> uh, <laughs> basically, Hunter Biden recently met and married this woman, Melissa Cohen, and they had a baby. He married Melissa Cohen just six days after they met. So this was a whirlwind six days, right? Like right before, Sh from Shabbos to Shabbos. And in those six days, she has a tattoo that says shalom because she's, you know, Melissa Cohen. And he got a matching tattoo. That said shalom. Kind of crazy ass Jewish chick is this who has the tattoo, marries a guy in six days who's crazy enough to get the matching tattoo on day three of their courtship. I don't think her parents are psyched about this at all. I'm going to go out on a limb and say Mr. and Mrs. Cohen did not think this was in their cards for little Missy. It would have been funnier if instead of shalom, his tattoo said shlomo. <laughs> Just an under underplay tattoo. This reminds me of the time that a Gentile colleague of mine, a very, very brilliant man, was asking me about Yiddish and Hebrew uh, slurs, epithets. And he said, okay, now what's a schmuck? And I explained to him. And he said, now what's a putz? And I explained to him. He said, now what's a shlomil? I said, well, I explained to him. He said, now what's a shlomo? You're like, that's just like John. Like, that's John Smith. I was like, that's actually shlomo the name is one of us. Solomon. <laughs> it's not actually a put down. He was devastated to hear that. Uh, Liel, I think the other bit of convention news that our listeners might have missed uh, is, is right in your uh, coverage area. Do you want to bring us up to date? I have no idea what that means, but I will tell you that uh, as I'm sitting there in Cape Cod, sated by a lot of wonderful wine and some delicious fish, I'm watching, as one does, the Republican National Convention, and Trump delivers a 17 and a half hour long speech, and I'm sort of, you know, staying there. And there, at the, at the very end, they do something I've never seen done before, and I love dearly. They bring out an opera singer and they have a fireworks display. So basically the entire National Mall turns into the front of the Bellagio in Vegas because literally the guy is singing time to say goodbye and there's fireworks. It's like the last scene from Ocean's Eleven, basically. But then the opera singer starts singing Leonard Cohen's Hallelujah. And I'm watching CNN and I can't remember who and i really wish i'd paid more attention because i was really sort of overwhelmed <laughs> one of the pundits said well you know this song is a staple of trump rallies and i was like what <laughs> uh of course it is the song by kate mckinnon from saturday night live which he famously sang as hillary clinton i was like wait a minute so in your world view hallelujah by leonard cohen is a trump rally statement 
and also written by Kate McKinnon? <laughs> I, mean, I mean, I'm sorry, but fake news sort of uh, applies. I will say that Kate McKinnon's rendition of Hallelujah, like the episode after the Trump election, was amazing. I mean, it was really great because, you know, we see a lot of Hallelujah covers. My favorite thing about this, though, is that this is the second time Hallelujah has apparently been used. I mean, it's not it's not exactly a staple, but this is the second time. And there were stories today that were like Leonard Cohen's estate is trying to figure out like what to do because... They said that they couldn't play that song. They asked them not to play that song, and they played right. that song. And so there's this like funny dance you have to do when you're the estate of some, you know, someone right. who's a politician is sort of using your your song, and you don't support them. I mean, in CNN's defense, Anderson Cooper did correct whoever it was and said, "No, please, that song was actually written by Shrek." So there is some <laughs> accuracy in reporting. Who do you think chooses that song? I am going to go with Ivanka because I bet you her shul does Lechadodi on Friday nights to the tune of Hallelujah, of, of, as, of Hallelujah. as most shuls do. Be like, what? Wouldn't it be cool if the Lechadodi was the theme song? If only she had told them that the song is actually by, you know, Cantor Moisha Shlomoberg of her shul. They were going between this and Adon Olam to the tune of the Paw Patrol theme song, and they decided. Adon Olam, Asher Malach. I love the Golden Girls one. <laughs> uh, or the Backstreet Boys. This week's News of the Jews, I feel like, is one of those reprises, like in L.A. Story, when Steve Martin records the weather and just plays it the same every night because it's always 70 and sunny right. in L.A. Like, British-Israeli woman sues EasyJet over their request that she give up her seat for Haredi men on two separate flights. I feel like we've been down this road. I will read from the Jewish Telegraphic Agency. A British-Israeli woman is suing the budget airline EasyJet. No need to call it a budget airline. That was just cruel. <laughs> for asking her to change seats on two separate flights because a Haredi <laughs> Orthodox man would not sit next to a woman. Melanie Wolfson, age 38, blah, blah, blah. Um, the first flight took place in October. The next one took place two months later. She finally had enough. She threw <laughs> She was <laughs> like, enough. She said, Dayenu. And the airline says, at EasyJet, we take claims of this nature very seriously. Not so seriously that we're going to stop doing it. No. They said, well, whilst, whilst it would be inappropriate to comment, as this matter is currently the subject of legal proceedings, we do not discriminate on any grounds. Haven't they figured out by now? Don't the airlines have a policy like, this is well, still up in the air whenever Haredi men complain on airlines. My favorite thing when I first saw this headline, I was like, people are still doing this? People are still flying right now? Right. Uh, like, in <laughs> summer 2020, pandemic central? Um, this, of course, was, like, from October and December. So, But it did give me, you know, like a real throwback to the time when planes were crowded and religious men wouldn't sit next to women. But here's a question. What's, yeah, what's in, the in, in today's the good world, old like, days. If, if, you're, if you're the sort of Haredi gentleman who cares about such things, does it make a difference to you if the woman is wearing gloves and a face covering. I mean, you're basically three quarters of a way to a burqa. So why right. not just be like, you know what? Okay, cool. This is God-enforced modesty, basically. Right. God has solved this well, for us. I did hear it's, a really great take sneeze. recently, which is that like Shomer Nagia is the original social distancing. Mm -hmm. which I love this idea that like you don't touch people and also that you have to like negotiate with someone how how strict you are. So like, oh, I, I touch, I don't, I don't dance. Like I do this, I don't do this. Like we're all learning how to observe <laughs> Jewish modesty rules. We're all in the like modern Orthodox Baal Shuva checklist column on J-Date now. Stephanie, as our social media correspondent, would you like to bring us up to date on the latest from TikTok? Okay, so TikTok only seems to bring like weird news of the Jews to us, though it is very enjoyable in a lot of ways. Um, so there's this new trend <laughs> on TikTok where, where teenagers are pretending to be Holocaust victims. And they're basically, it's part of like this larger trend of like first person storytelling about history. This one's just about the Holocaust. And what you do is like you dress up, you 
put your like scarf on, whatever, and you basically like tell a story firsthand about what's happening to you. And so this is from insider.com and this is the lead images. It's like three, three screens. And one of them is a girl who looks like her face has like been looked made like dirty and a little beat up. And it, and the caption just says, yeah, so I died in the Holocaust, 1941. <laughs> like, okay, that's offensive, your grammar. I'm sorry, Stephanie, I used some kind of grammar What's the word I'm looking for? Not <laughs> Someone who's really like, yeah. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, some people like wear Stars of David. People wear striped pajamas. And the weirdest thing is that these videos use the hashtag Holocaust and also hashtag heaven, which is how Ooh. you sort of know that like non-Jews are starting this trend because oh. it's just so weird. When they interviewed <laughs> some of the Jewish girls who were doing this. They're not Jewish girls. Some of them are. Did the, the article in Wired Magazine went out and interviewed some of the people who were doing it. And some of them, like Michaela, age 15 from Florida, said, I'm very motivated and captivated by the Holocaust. I have ancestors who were in concentration camps and actually have met a few survivors from Auschwitz. I wanted to spread awareness and share out to everyone the reality behind the camps by sharing my Jewish grandmother's story. So she had a Jewish grandmother, Michaela did. She's named after her grandmother, Miriam, hence Michaela. And she wanted to share out the story, as she put it. And I mean, I don't know. Some of them are Jewish. There's a weird world in which, like, these people are saying, like, you know, this is for education. Like, I want people to know the stories. And it's like, we need to figure out where our line is. Because we're like, the young people never forget. We must tell the stories. We must take them to Holocaust museums. And then all the teens are, like, pretending they're in the Holocaust. And we're like, no. Right. I'd like to launch a new educational campaign. Uh, it's called Read a Fucking Book, You Moron. Dot com, I in which you're advised to actually read a fucking book, you moron. There's this way in which we have the soft bigotry of low expectations of children today. <laughs> well, I will say, like, these videos are disturbing. I don't like them. I sort of was joking earlier. I, this, it's like, it's weird because it, it just, like, plays on this victim. I mean, it's just it's just icky. You imagine that these people are doing it without the full story. They're like, oh, I'm just going to, like, put eyeliner on and also, like, like I'm, like, have dirt on me and I'm going to just, like, do this thing. I don't know. I don't like it. Jewish girl and creator Taylor Hillman said, I did receive a few comments suspicious about whether I was Jewish or trying to debate the history of the Holocaust. Overall, I have not seen any true hate comments toward the video, but more so concerned about my intentions. If you're getting feedback from people who are curious, is this some sort of Holocaust denialism? You're probably not doing your Holocaust awareness right. Can I just tell you what, what came to me while I was sort of like reading this article? It's just that the realization that I feel so profoundly fortunate that social media didn't exist during oh. the actual holocaust can you imagine <laughs> you're you're on the train to auschwitz right and not only are you in the train but you have to go on twitter and, and read some asshole being like oh <laughs> hashtag the jews are on their way to auschwitz be like fuck you man i'm on the way to like it's so much better without can you imagine instagram in like birkin now like i'm i'm good thank you <laughs> for small mercies the silver lining of this, I will say, it's like Holocaust denial is a big problem. And a lot of it happens because like you don't know Jews, right? You never heard those stories firsthand. You never met survivors. So it became easier to believe that like whatever the bullshit thing they say that about how the Holocaust is fake. I mean, I don't know. But here, like if ever every kid is on TikTok and all you're seeing is like Holocaust victims, like maybe there is an argument that that sort of puts it in your mind. Like, yeah, this was real. Like, not that, I mean, it's, it's really sad that this is, this is where I'm at. Like, where I'm like, good, people are acting out the Holocaust. And that means that people will believe that it happened. This was real. It was a, it was a bunch of super attractive girls walking around in their mech mansions being like, oh my God, we're so dead right now. Is there any good reason if you're a parent to let your children be on social media? I think not. 
I don't see that our children gain from being on TikTok or Instagram or Twitter or Facebook. I think their lives are better if they're not on them. I think that you can have a phone and text and be in touch with people and have some independence without spending your time making Holocaust videos for TikTok. I'm going to disagree. I think that there's something really interesting happening with a lot of young people in social media. That's like activist movements are starting there. Like, I, th- I don't think you can say that all of teens on social media is people pretending to be Holocaust victims on TikTok. But that disgusts just- me even more because kids aren't supposed to be freaking activists. They're supposed to sit and learn shit so that they actually know what's going on with the world. They shouldn't be like, oh, I care very deeply about this topic that I only became aware of three minutes ago because some influencer on Instagram told me it was important. No! Don't I mean, be an activist. Think- be a student. Yes, it would be nice if kids could be kids, but since people are going to schools and shooting them up with guns, actually kids can't be kids anymore. I feel the three of us are all very far apart here. (laughs) (laughs) Things got weird, guys. Our next guest is Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs. He served for 22 years as Chief Rabbi of the United Hebrew Congregations of the Commonwealth and is a renowned religious leader, philosopher, and award-winning author. His most recent book is Morality, Restoring the Common Good in Divided Times. Welcome, Rabbi Lord. <laughs> Stephanie, Lord it's just great, just great to be with you. What does your wife call you, Rabbi or Lord? Uh, Lord, basically. <laughs> <laughs> During lockdown, we celebrated our golden wedding. I have to say that I wouldn't have been a rabbi or a lord without Elaine. That is on the record. We, we have that on tape. That is perfect. <laughs> and you make it clear in the book. So, so let's jump right into the book. You spend about 250 pages detailing very movingly and eloquently so much that is broken about our contemporary world from social media that atomize us and take us from a mindset of we to a mindset of I to a culture of outsourcing that robs people of, of basic income to sort of politics of, of contempt and, and division. It's a sort of really profound and profoundly depressing catalog of so many ills. And yet you end the book sort of insisting that there is a rosy future ahead and that it depends on our ability to rally around this notion of morality. So explain to us kindly, give us reason to be hopeful. The most gloomy and doom ridden of all Israel's prophets was Jeremiah. And yet, if you remember, when his cousin says to him, your uncle died and there's this field in Israel and are you going to redeem it? Are you sure we're going to come back? And he redeems Potter's field. And then he delivers, especially in chapter 31, the most hope-filled vision of the Jewish people ever given. It's just stunning. I found in general, the prophets of Israel were all prophets of doom, but also prophets of hope. So the question was, how does this work? There was a professor of English literature, George Steiner. George Steiner drew a very interesting distinction between a prediction and a prophecy. He said, if a prediction comes true, it's succeeded. If a prophecy comes true, it's failed. And basically, that's what prophets did. They warned in order to avoid. They said, guys, this is going to happen to us unless 
unless we change our ways, unless we come back to the people we ought to be. And therefore, I think you're reading the book as a prediction, but actually it's a prophecy. And so the doom and gloom is all there in order to generate activity, which generates hope. And I think that's one of the most uh, original ideas Judaism ever gave the world. In some ways, Rabbi, this is a return to your original vocation, which is you were trained as a philosopher before you decided you wanted to be a rabbi, right? Yeah. I was charmed to see that one of the great influences for you has been the virtue ethicist Alistair McIntyre. And McIntyre basically thinks that there is no morality outside of community, that that communities are the, the structures that sustain morality. It's not about laws, it's about people. And you sort of begin with people and their practices. That has always struck me as, in some ways, a perfect argument for Judaism, right? Which starts with this web of practices and says, look, you need a group of 10 people to get together and do this stuff. And out of that, they'll generate morality. And you are, I think, quite careful not to put down Christianity, but you also do say <laughs> that the big difference between you and McIntyre is that you have some hope and he doesn't. So is there something particularly Jewish about your hope or your optimism at the end? I mean, you know, Christians, I have always found actually gloomier, though, for a different reason, which is their emphasis on original sin, which Jews tend not to talk about as much. But, you know, wh what then is your specifically Jewish prescription for morality? I knew Alastair McIntyre. I loved Alastair McIntyre. Alastair McIntyre was a Catholic. He believed in original sin. He believed ultimately, I think, that the, uh, the denouement, the telos of human happiness is beyond this life. If you read any Catholic, if you read the novelist Graham Greene, you read anyone, any Catholic story will end sadly, very often with betrayal. And that's the Catholic view. And I think it's an important voice. I used to learn from Alastair McIntyre not to be naive in my optimism. And he was kind enough to um, take my work seriously, although he fully recognized that my Jewish faith was more hopeful. Well, Rabbi, it is out of tremendous respect for you and admiration for your work that, that I want to push this point a bit further. I want to read to you a few lines from the book. You write, to become moral, we have to make a commitment to some moral community and code. We have to make a choice to forego certain choices. We have to choose the right restraints. And having fallen in love with some moral principle or ethical ideal, we have to build a structure of behavior around it for the moment when love falters, which struck me as a very sort of elegant and eloquent prescription, but at the same time also as oddly divorced from the very notion of faith and its centrality, the sort of transcendent idea that the source of morality is elsewhere, right, doesn't seem to be reflected in these lines. It's almost like any kind of ethical communal purpose, if arranged just correctly, would do. You're absolutely right. And let me now explain why. America still has strong heartlands of religion. Europe doesn't. It doesn't have them at all. And I wrote morality to try and make a little difference in Britain and in America. So I had to make some hard decisions, as I've had to do from time to time. Many of my books, and I've written over 30 of them, are just specifically for Jews. They're about Jewish ideas and Jewish texts. But I reckon that morality had to touch people whether they were Jewish or not, whether they were religious or not, and so on. 
you know, you say, well, America still has these heartlands of faith. But what's so interesting to me, Rabbi, is I've traveled a lot in England, where, as you are the first to point out, highly secularized, right? I mean, it's really hard outside of a few Jewish neighborhoods, and there's some little enclaves of Catholicism, and there are some evangelical Brits, but basically it's an entirely secularized land, right? And yet, a lot of the Brits I've met have seemed better at being sort of modest and self-sacrificing and abstemious. I mean, I remember visiting Mary Midgley up in Newcastle, right, who was a friend of your graduate advisor, Philip Afoot, one of the great philosophers. And Mary Midgley was basically living in an unfurnished, I mean, she it was so British, you know, she had a teapot and she had a few old threadbare sofas and then she had a lot of books. And there was just no luxury. And this was one of the great philosophers of our time. And I see that again and again in England, that people seem willing to live more lightly on the land. They seem willing to live with just less junk. Now, in America, the classic American story, it seems to me, is the deeply, deeply religious person who also lives in a totally disgusting McMansion, you know, 5,000 square feet and a hot tub on every floor. So, I mean, I don't know. It's It strikes me that the Brits have a kind of self-sacrificing. I mean, these are the people who did Dunkirk. It's, it seems to me you are carrying on without religion, but with some loyalty to country and crown and sort of a higher purpose than just buying stuff. Or am I just idealizing your country? No, no. You know, the person who was most lyrical about this was my undergraduate supervisor, Roger Scruton. Roger was the great poet laureate of tradition as such. He was a Burkean conservative. He wrote in a book of his called England, an elegy, that um, England is home. And in a home, things are there because they're there. (laughs) So you kind of live with this centuries of tradition of habitual ways of doing things. And you don't have to create security around yourself by a big house or lots of possessions. You just don't. That security is there in the air. It's there in the culture. And that culture does actually bind people together so that if you can, you know, touch the right chord, you can generate the weave from within the culture. It's partly because England is very old in comparison with the States, and it's partly because it's very small in comparison with the States. So Rabbi, you know, you say early on in the book that you're hopeful for the future, and you cite statistics about Gen Z, this idea that actually the the youngs today, the youth, are more maybe moral and altruistic than, you know, the millennials and Gen X. And you detail interactions you've had with young people throughout your work that actually lead you to be really hopeful. So I'm curious if you could pass on some of that hope for us and why, and, and how you see technology as relating to all this, these young people who communicate almost primarily online, yet are still good and moral people. The reason I say this is because two years ago, I did a five-part series for the BBC called Morality. And we did something very interesting. We got some of the world's biggest experts on all these subjects. And in order for that not to be dominated by experts, we got 17 and 18-year-olds from four of our schools, two in Manchester, two in uh, London. And they interacted with the experts. In other words, they listened to the conversations that I had with the experts, and then they gave their own views. And um, unanimously, the people who reviewed the programs, and we had experts like, you know, Mike Sandell, Robert Putnam, Jordan Peterson, um, Gene Twenge, Stephen Pinker, and so on. We had everyone. But according to everyone, the stars were the children, whom they found more articulate, more thoughtful, more morally profound than the experts. I found that actually a very life-changing experience because It's very easy to dismiss youth culture with its social media, with its superficiality. 
and I suddenly realized spending time with these four schools, that actually young people were reflecting very deeply about these things, and they were willing to make personal commitments to help bring them about. And so if, if a young person is, is listening now, or a not-so-young person, and particularly people who do not feel deeply rooted in the observance part of whatever faith tradition they may come from, are there practices that you could recommend or shifts in a way of thinking or something by way of transformation? We're right on the cusp of the Jewish New Year. Something that you could tell a listener, look, if you do nothing but X, Y, or Z, you already are on the right path. For five years from 2013 to 2018, I taught at NYU as well as Yeshiva University. NYU is a very varied campus. And I have a wonderful rabbi there, Rabbi Yehuda Sana. One of the things that um, Yehuda Sana did with the students, and it was called the For Many Institute, is that he got every one of them to take on a personal project helping other people. One of my students decided that people sleeping on the streets, the thing they most needed was socks to keep them warm. So her project was gathering hundreds of thousands of socks and distributing them to people. Yehuda Sana, once a, a year, would take a group of Jewish and Muslim students to some disaster area, like, you know, the, the wreckage after Hurricane Katrina, and they would spend a week working to help, you know, reconstruct houses that had been destroyed and so on. To my mind, the whole business of developing a moral sense is a business of doing first and foremost. Having the experience, either on your own or better still with others, of going out to people in need and making a difference to their lives. That is something that's absolutely transformative. You had in America a program called, um, what was it called, Teach for America? My wife did it after college. Fantastic. I had the privilege of sitting with a young man called David Miliband and persuading Tony Blair to institute an identical program in Britain, Teach First. So that is what I say to people. Go out and do something, and you will be transformed by it. You know, um, the, the most important thing about the moral life is not what you achieve by it, but what you become by it. Right now, there is a possibility that could not exist at any other time for a real program of national service in Britain and America. You have an entire generation of 18 and 19-year-olds who are not going to get jobs. You have an enormous amount of work that has to be done. Just consider test and trace, for instance which needs around 300,000 people in the States. To actually connect those young people with a year or two of national service would transform them, transform America, and uh, rescue a generation from hopelessness. So speaking of rescuing a generation from hopelessness, you have a, another book out as well, because you would not be Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs if you did not have multiple books. One of the books is by the rabbi, the other is by the Lord. <laughs> so this other book is Life-Changing Ideas, a weekly reading of the Hebrew Bible. And I'm really curious to hear you tell us a little bit about that book, because it's basically really making the Parsha relevant to our lives today. So could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, you know, uh, having given sermons for many, many years and having written Covenant and Conversation for many years, I discovered that the thing that really touches people is, can I apply this to my life? 
Um, and I just thought, well, one way of doing that is to look at Judaism as a system of ideas and take one idea and uh, just chase it through for each parasha. We ran this as a series a couple of years ago, and nothing we have done has had that kind of response. People seem to love it. So we've decided to bring it out as a book. And let me just say this. On Yom Kippur, we spend half our time saying, you know, I'm guilty, I betrayed, I stole, I robbed. For the sin we have committed, we go right through the alphabet there twice. What on earth are we doing with all these confessions? I suddenly realized that what Yom Kippur is saying is, on this holiest day of the year, we stand before God and we say, Almighty, I am not going to blame anyone else. What I did, I did, and please forgive me. The atonement, the confession of Yom Kippur is Judaism's vaccine against a victim culture. Jews were victims in generation after generation for the better part of a thousand years. And yet never, except maybe for a few moments on Tisha B'Av, did they say they did this to us. Nowhere in the Torah do we turn to the Egyptians and say, you did this to us. Judaism became a religion of personal responsibility, a religion that said, I blame no one else. And that is the basic idea behind the confession on Yom Kippur. And I regard that as an extraordinary, extraordinary idea. Very, very rare, very unusual. On a very related note, Yom Kippur is almost upon us, as is Rosh Hashanah, and you could bet that this being an election year, we would hear at least a few, if not many, many of our rabbis use this moment to deliver sermons that are in part, or in some cases in large, politically oriented. Now, a while ago, you issued a warning calling on rabbis not to mix politics and religion, not to use the pulpit as an opportunity to sort of adjudicate unearthly matters, which is a statement that I happen to personally very strongly agree with, but which nonetheless generated a tremendous amount of criticism. Could you tell us a little bit about why you feel this way? Yeah, this came up in a conversation just like this. I was asked a political question and then I replied, I do not mix religion and politics. It's actually a fundamental error to try and do both. The basic separation of religion and state on which the United States is built takes its origin from Montesquieu in L'Esprit des Lois and the separation of powers. And it is my view that the first statement in history of the separation of powers is the Hebrew Bible. You have the king, you have the high priest, and you have the prophet. The king is not the high priest. The high priest is not the king. And both are subject to the moral criticism of the prophet. Now, this is revolutionary beyond revolutionary. Read Michael Walzer of Princeton, his book In God's Shadow. He explains that this idea of kingship in the Hebrew Bible is absolutely unique because in every other ancient civilization in, to this day in Britain, the head of state is the head of religion. And for the head of state not to be the head of religion, as in the case in Judaism, is the first ever separation of politics, i.e. the king, and religion, i.e. the high priest. So anyone who um, mixes religion and politics, 
I think, has not understood the nature of Judaism. Does that mean that anyone actually acts the way I argue they ought to act? No, they don't. It, I found it quite shocking, the degree to which the pulpit was used in America for political purposes. Is it different in England? Are rabbis there less likely on the left and the right to use the pulpit for political purposes? In England, I was chief rabbi. <laughs> so you put a stop to that. <laughs> I put a stop to it. You were the head of religion. It's a um, misuse of the pulpit. So let me play the part of the progressive rabbi in the United States who feels that there is a Torah injunction to love the stranger whom they read in all their sincerity as the, the immigrant and then sees the power of the state thwarting their ability to welcome the stranger, the immigrant, and feels that Torah is telling them to act in the only effective way that they feel they can act, which is to take a political position. I mean, they and, and, and similarly, right, you would have Zionists in the pulpit who would say, you know, if I am truly of Am Yisrael and I love my fellow people Israel, how can I not speak out about the Iran deal or what have you? I mean, they it's, it's easy to see how on both the left and the right, rabbis can feel genuinely called by Torah to speak to contemporary politics. Well, first of all, there's a fundamental difference between speaking about morality and speaking about politics or speaking about society on the one hand and the state on the other. For heaven's sake, I spoke about uh, loving the stranger. I marched with people on it. Uh, I dealt with all these things. These things were never party political. I never, ever engaged in anything that was party political. Many, many, many times I was asked by specific political parties to speak at this gathering or that gathering or the other gathering. And I said, of course I will, so long as the other parties are represented. And by and large, they agreed. The point is this. There is an extraordinarily wise document, I think the finest work of political philosophy in modern times, Alexis de Tocqueville's Democracy in America. And at the heart of that book, he says something absolutely shattering, life-changing. You know, he had expected, coming from France, where religion had power but no influence, and he came to America where religion had no power, so he certainly expected religion to have no influence, and found the opposite, that religion was hugely influential. He called it the first of America's political institutions. He spent a long time studying, why is this? Why is religion so influential in America? And he discovered that ministers of religion never spoke politics from the pulpit. He asked the ministers, why don't you speak politics from the pulpit? And they replied, because politics is divisive. And if we spoke politics from the pulpit, we would be divisive too. We prefer to be a unifying force in American life, and therefore we practice restraint and do not speak politics from the pulpit. Now, everyone, I think, should be made to read democracy in America, because it is an incredibly far-seeing work. I don't know if people realize what happens once you go down that road of speaking politics from the pulpit. The first thing you do is you turn politics into a religion. The second thing you do is that you religionize politics. The highest value in politics, without which you can never make peace, is compromise. But compromise is the ultimate sin in religion. 
So once you religionize politics, you absolutize differences, and the end result is that you divide a country into two. Now, if that is not the current state of the United States, what exactly is? I used to regularly sit uh, with the four prime ministers during my time, with John Major, Tony Blair, Gordon Brown, and David Cameron. I even wrote books for them. But it was always on morality, never, ever, ever about politics. And they respected that, and they never, ever asked me to support them on a party political issue. And, and the result was that I was doing what I think religious leaders ought to do, and that is stay moral, but don't be political. Do you feel that's what the Queen has done in her role as head of the Church of England? Oh, you cannot believe how good the Queen is at this. You know, she won't say anything in case it's divisive. Oh, but she smiles and she has wonderful corgis. Uh, she's terrific. Yes. She understands it completely. We used to talk about this a lot with Prince Charles. We used to have lots of sessions together and he was often tempted into controversial areas. And so we, we would actually sit and study what controversial areas you can enter into as a future monarch and what you can't. And it's, it really, it's, it's interesting. I mean, it's not a simple thing. It needs careful evaluation. But I'm really, really seeing the United States suffering for what has been the case for a long, long period, turning politics into a religion. What did you keep Charles out of? What did you warn him away from? I can't tell you that. <laughs> what did you urge him into? I can't tell you that either. <laughs> so here's my last question. I've been very borderline obsessed with the question of English Jews. For a while, I was reading a lot of memoirs of British rock stars, entertainers, and so forth. And I found that whenever a Jew entered their story, whether it was an agent or a lawyer or a record producer, they would always say so-and-so, a typical East End Jew, or, you know, so-and-so, a typical, you know, Whitehall Jew. They would always point out the person's Judaism, which is not something you would see in American books. It was obviously better than the fact that Agatha Christie always had an evil Jew lurking somewhere who didn't end up the murderer, but kind of threw the suspicion off the murderer. But through your literature, it does seem that the Jew is more exotic in England than in the United States, where we're sort of one immigrant group among many. Do you feel like you're more exoticized as a Jew over there than when you're in the US? There's no question. America, number one, has 20 times as many Jews as we have. Number two, America is a nation of immigrants. That's how it defines itself. Jews are no more outsiders than, than anyone else. So in the literature, a tradition grew up. You know, you'll find it in uh, Fagin and Charles Dickens. You'll find it in a number of Victorian novelists of the Jew as exotic, as sharp practicing, and, and so on. And then, of course, you get to the 1920s and 30s, the Agatha Christie moment, a horrendous moment. You get Evelyn Moore, you get T.S. Eliot. It was kind of in the air. It was kind of taken for granted. I don't kind of see that now because Jews are not the most conspicuous outsiders. Very much not. I think they're a little bit better established. There are at least 80 of us in the House of Lords, for instance, which is a lot of Jews, you know. Wow. It's a good place to have a mincha, you know. I've never come across this, but it has appeared from time to time, especially in very recent years. You know, we've had some, some bad moments. You know, before we let you go, I would like to know, you know, the high holidays are, as Liel said, fast approaching. I mean, 
Do you have something to get us through these very, very strange times when people maybe won't be able to do what they normally do, won't be able to congregate with their fellow congregants? You know, they they might be doing things at home. Do you have any wisdom to offer us on these strange times of self-reflection? The importance of Rosh Hashanah seems to me to chime precisely with where we are. I mean, the pandemic has been about this threat to life, this invisible threat to life that's gone worldwide. We can't see it. We're not sure that we can guard against it. We're conscious of it the whole time. And all of a sudden, life has been something that we don't take for granted. Rosh Hashanah is when we begin saying the fourfold prayer. Zachreinu l'chaim, remember us for life. Melech hafetz b'chaim, king who delights in life. Because venu b'sefa write us in the book of life, for your sake, God of life. Rosh Hashanah was always the time when I have tried to say, Rabbana Shalom, Almighty God, I come before you with my account of what I have done this past year, what I feel I ought to do next year, and why I believe. I hope you will write me in the book of life. I think it is an immense moment of self-reflection, which is going to be all the more possible for us if we're actually not sitting in a crowded synagogue where there's a hubbub of noise and we can hardly concentrate on the prayers. I think Rosh Hashanah is all about where are we in life? Where did we hope we would be? And what are we going to do in the coming year? And of course, um, Yom Kippur. You know, there is a, an English writer, Alain de Botton. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I've done lots of public conversations with him. And he brought out a book called Religion for Atheists. And in it, he writes... Yom Kippur is such a good day, it's a shame. It only happens once a year. Why does Alan love Yom Kippur? Because it's a day in which you apologize, in which you probably always knew you should, but would never get around to it without there being a date in the diary. And that, I think, is what you have to do. And that is a phone call. It's a whatever it is. But I think to think of all the people that you might have hurt, might have ignored, might have something or other, and just before Rosh Hashanah, do those apologies and try and heal those relationships because the other person will feel better, you will feel better, and you will know that a certain human healing has taken place because of that holy day. Amen to that. Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs, thank you so much for being with us on Unorthodox. Our listeners can get all the books we are talking about today and more at rabbisachs.org. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Rabbi. excited to announce Tablet's first ever essay competition, First Personal. Our editors are looking for previously unpublished work by writers living in North America who have never written for Tablet before. They are seeking submissions on the theme of belonging. Where do you feel at home or no longer at home, physically, spiritually, or culturally? How do you find community or a sense that you're a part of something larger than yourself? Are there places where you feel a sense of belonging or alienation or both? Tablet is seeking personal essays about your life and your experiences and how your thoughts and feelings have evolved over time. Tablet editors will review all submissions and choose their favorite five, which they will edit with the writers. 
The authors of those five pieces will be brought to New York City to read their story in front of a live audience. A guest judge will then select the winner. The winning essay will be published in Tablet and the winner will receive $500. For more information and to submit your essay, please visit tabletmag.com slash essay contest. For this week's Mailbox, we rip something straight from the headlines of our Facebook page, and it's very Liel-centric. Liel, do you want to read Amy Natterson Kroll's missive posted to Facebook a couple weeks ago? Oh, I so do. Dear unorthodox, but Liel in particular, you sell short the wonderful game of hockey and the many fans who thrill at every Jewish hockey player who reaches the pros or even the semi-pros. Ice hockey and historically roller hockey are hot tickets at the JCC Maccabi games each summer and hockey returned to the world Maccabiya in 2013 with teams from the US, Russia, Canada and Israel at several levels including college, professional and high school level players. I think that every unorthodox fan should applaud Mr. Sherbatov. How better to remind the Poles that we are still here than an Israeli star on their hockey team who can wear an Israeli flag when the team wins their league championship. And Amy ends the letter by saying, Liel, you need to revisit ice hockey. Amy, I am telling you and I will tell the rest of the J crew, I want to believe. I want to love ice hockey. I'm trying here. I'm so open. So here's what I'm going to do. I am open-hearted, open-minded. Write me at unorthodox at tabletmag.com and tell me why and how I should be revisiting hockey. Explain to me. Bring me into the fold. Convert me. Be the Chabad hockey person who says, excuse me, sir, are you a hockey fan? And if not, puts on hockey to fill in or jock straps <laughs> or whatever is the example and brings me closer into the fold of ice hockey fandom. I want to join this family. Yeah, I mean, Leo, you can't have it both ways. You can't eat ice hockey and also beach volleyball. That's true. <laughs> uh- I hardly know what to say. I I had to stop listening at roller hockey, which I was not aware was an intercollegiate sport. And yet- Doesn't need to be. It, well, and yet a cursory reading of the internet finds this article from the New York Times in 2017 saying that there is in fact an Eastern Collegiate Roller Hockey Association and that Yeshiva University is a top team in their division two. Wow. Did, did any of us even know this was a, a sport grown-ups played? Well, let's get someone from the YU roller hockey team on this show. Absolutely. Teach Liel how to roller roller skate. Can I interject for a second? Sorry, Fredman Ader. I agree that ice hockey and roller hockey and field hockey are all goyesha, but you're forgetting the most Jewish sport because literally only Jews play it, and that is Yeshiva League floor hockey, of which I am what a high that? school champion. What? Indoor field hockey? Uh, no, you just run around, and instead of a puck, it's a ball, and you run around the gym the whole time. And what are you holding? What are you holding in your hands? He's sick, but you're just running. Oh, I love this. Biggest sport in the Yeshiva world, hands down. I was on the Mayanote Rapids. We won the championship every year, and I did win the best offensive player of the year. Wow, Sara. I I will say this does sound very safe. This sounds like the safest version of hockey I've ever heard. Sara Fredman Ader, you just brought my whole life full circle because you may know or you may not know that I have a, a fairly bad scar on my right hand. And when people ask me what it comes from, I will often say, oh, it was, you know, a knife fight or back when I was in the gang. The war. You know, and the truth is 
that I got it the summer that I turned, I want to say 11 or 12, when I was a camper at Camp Lincoln Farm. I finally, after after going to the nudist camp and then the Yiddish socialist camp, right, um, Kinderland, I said to my parents, could I go to normal camp one summer? And they're like, okay, fine. You want to see normal camp? And they found a super like Jewy suburban camp. All the kids were from Westchester. It was in, I think, Ardmore, New York. And it was just like ping pong and tennis and, you know, the pool and what it was just, and the kids were horrible and obnoxious and clicky. And my parents like, like, okay, you wanted normal kids. This is what it's like out there in the jungle. But one of the games we played was floor hockey. And I had never seen it anywhere else. And yes, you just ran around on a gym floor with sticks. And some kid, he was probably named Ari, high-sticked me and sliced a big chunk of skin out of the, the area right above my thumb. Freaking and that's Ari. where I got the scar, was playing floor hockey. Should we find him? I will fucking kick his Are ass to this Are you listening? You have to apologize to Mark this year. Yeah, Ari. Sorry for Ebenator, I had never heard of floor hockey in any other context, but you're saying it was a big, was it a boys sport as well or just girls? No, I mean, honestly, it's the sport that matters in yeshivas, boys, girls. It's the one with all the street cred. I'll, I'll send you pictures. Jewish sports, Gaga, floor hockey. Matkot. Matkot. I should, I should go to the Maccabia as uh, the Matkot champion. Matkobia. There you go. Write to us, unorthodox at tabletmag.com or call us, 914-570-4869. Holly Huffnagel was recently named AJC's U.S. Director for Combating Anti-Semitism, spearheading the agency's response to anti-Semitism in the United States and its efforts to better protect the Jewish community. And she is our Gentile of the Week. Welcome, Holly. Thank you, Stephanie. It's good to be here. So I have to ask, how did you become an expert in anti-Semitism? Good question. And it didn't come overnight, obviously. I actually entered this field, if you will, through the Holocaust, through studying the Holocaust. I went to a Christian undergraduate college and went abroad to Poland, Germany, Czech Republic, focusing on the Holocaust and really understanding kind of the Christian history of persecution of Jews kind of leading up to the, the Holocaust. And that was kind of my entry point. And from then on, it, it has now become more focused just on anti-Semitism and combating it. And so you get your master's from Georgetown and you focused on 20th century Polish history? Real specific. Yes, I think my parents were wondering, you know, why isn't she a doctor or a lawyer? 20th century Polish history. You're not even Polish, Holly. You're not even, you know, Jewish. Yes. So that's exactly what I, I did. I wanted to better understand the relationships between Christians and Jews, but also between Jews and Muslims, ethnic Muslims who were living in Poland before and during the Holocaust and how those relationships affected what happened to the Jewish community. You and I have both done fellowships through the Auschwitz Jewish Center. Isn't that just an amazing place? That's the first AJC for me. Like, yes, me too. Yes, it's the Auschwitz Jewish Center. That means AJC to me now that I'm working for another AJC. But yes, well, that's wonderful. And so you've volunteered at the Auschwitz-Birkenau State Museum. I mean, this is above and beyond really for anyone. Was this surprising to you that this is sort of where you found yourself? Yes and no, because I can see now looking back what I was really passionate about. And that really was kind of, you know, reconciliation, fighting hate, making sure things don't happen again, of course. But if someone was to tell me, you know, 10, 12 years ago when I was just starting in this field that 
one day you're going to be working for a Jewish advocacy organization, I, I probably wouldn't have believed them, you know, leading up to, to this point. But all the steps make sense. And yes, one summer I did spend volunteering and cleaning shoes of, of the Holocaust survivors because they have to rotate out of the cases. They only can be exposed to light for a certain amount of time. So I was with a team of about five people trained on how to do that, all voluntary. And it was, it was an incredible experience I'll remember for the rest of my life. Wait, how do you do that? What's the process? There's a certain solution they would give us. They, we would actually use like different kinds of toothbrushes depending on the material. And they would show us kind of how to do it. And then there was some kind of other almost protective coating that we would put on and they would dry and then they'd go in a special bin. And what happens, and again, I'm, I would have to almost speak to the curator of the Auschwitz-Birkenau uh, State Museum, but they'd rotate out a certain number, like a certain, like maybe six months or a year, and they'd come in and come out. And what was interesting for me is throughout my time studying history of the Holocaust, working on issues related to combating anti-Semitism, actually, I've been to Auschwitz a lot. One time, about six or seven years after that cleaning of the shoes, I actually saw one of the shoes that I had cleaned because I remembered it so well. It was this kind of red shoe with some ornate detailing, and I actually saw it in the, the window with all those other shoes. And so that was kind of a really powerful moment. And so in that moment, you get to say, like, guys, I cleaned that shoe with a toothbrush. <laughs> I, I was with my students and I was teaching an undergraduate course at Westmont College, which was the Christian liberal arts college that I graduated from. And I was actually going back with my students and basically teaching the same program that I was taught. 10 years before. And we were going through the exhibits at Auschwitz in the town of Auschwitz in Poland. And I was actually with my husband at the time. And, and so he was the one that experienced that moment, just emotional moment for me. But I wanted to kind of yell like, everyone come here, look, look, look you know, but I, that probably wouldn't have been appropriate. And thankfully, no one else was around me. But yes, I did want to show someone. So will you tell us a little bit about the other AJC, the place you work now and what your role is as what it means to be the director for combating anti-Semitism in the U.S.? Absolutely. So as we both know, so AJC stands for the Auschwitz Jewish Center, but it also stands for American Jewish Committee. And the AJC is actually one of the oldest Jewish advocacy organizations in the United States. It was founded in 1906 and actually in part in response to anti-Semitism, global anti-Semitism, specifically from the Kishinev uh, pogroms in what was then the Russian Empire and really trying to use kind of American Jewish influence and understanding of foreign policy to change world events, if you will, better protect the Jewish community around the world. And AJC, for the 114 years of its existence, has always focused on domestic anti-Semitism, you know, through various campaigns, through media ads, through various like coalition building efforts, you know, throughout the 1940s, 50s, 60s and onward. But they've never actually had a position that's called U.S. Director for Combating Anti-Semitism. And so this position that I'm in it's to only focus on anti-Semitism in the U.S. So even though we know anti-Semitism is a global problem, you know, I would say that there's actually kind of a unique American flavor. It doesn't happen in a vacuum, but my job is to focus just on the U.S., what's happening here, and develop a strategy that will take all parts of the agency, really mobilizing our advocacy arm to better impact and influence our efforts here. And we now have 24 offices regionally. So I'll be working with all of those offices to try to be more effective in how we counter anti-Semitism at home. And the job really was a response to what's happening. I mean, when we look at our recent survey data, when we look at AJC did a survey, for instance, that showed 88% and almost 9 out of 10 American Jews see anti-Semitism as a problem in America today. 84% see that it's been rising in the last five years. The attitudes align with the data that we're seeing. And so AJC is responding to what's been happening here with this position. So what's a typical day like for you? Are you on conference calls? I mean, obviously things are a little bit different. We're talking at the end of August. Like, what, What's a day like for you? 
as probably many people in positions like this would say, there's no day that's a typical day. But I started this position in April, on the 20th of, of April, which I thought was a very appropriate day for a director to combat anti-Semitism. Hitler's birthday. Position. Yes, exactly. So I'm like, you know what? I'm going to, this is a good day to start and show <laughs> these, you know, anti-Semites I'm coming after them. No, I'm, I'm being facetious. But I started this position during the pandemic. I mean, I, I work with our advocacy team. I work across the agency. I know everybody within AJC because I used to be the assistant director at AJC Los Angeles's office. So I did have about a year and a half of working throughout the agency, knowing who's doing what. But still, I'm kind of this, this team of one in my home. And that's where I've started. So everything I've really done has been over, over the computer, which has been interesting. But my day varies. So, you know, unfortunately, in this space, a lot of our work is reactive. I think that's something we, we all need to kind of shift to trying to be more proactive and figuring out well, what's coming next. How can we respond to anti-Semitism after the pandemic's over? You know, what are we putting in place, you know, using kind of 21st century tools to, to be proactive in the fight when we think about future of anti-Semitism. But nevertheless, most of, a lot of my day is reacting to things that are happening, working across our regional offices and responding to incidents, how to push back, how to develop plans in place to work with local government officials, state and federal officials as well in that response. So that's part of the day. Other parts is it's more educational. So I'll do several different talks, not only with the Jewish community, but with the non-Jewish community as well. I think that's something I hope to bring to this space is having a non-Jewish voice talk about anti-Semitism and why it's important actually for non-Jews to be part of this, this fight. This is a societal issue. We, you know, we all know this, but I actually would argue that Many people from even my own community, my own background, don't see this as a societal issue. They see anti-Semitism as a Jewish issue and for Jews to solve. And like, so I will do several talks about why that's not true. I'm involved with our social media campaign, you know, policy papers, briefing papers, analyses, et cetera. So every day is a little bit different. But um, one thing I'm working on now, which is, I think, an important project, and this is where I'll, I'll end, is just a multi-pronged plan like on how we're going to best combat anti-Semitism in the U.S. We talk about at AJC and other Jewish organizations as well, talk about the different sources of anti-Semitism today and that there, there isn't a silver bullet. There is no one single thing that we need to do. We can't just do education. We can't just have legislation like on their own. Those things are great, but they won't, you know, lower levels at the success rate that we want. So I'm developing a plan right now that has about six or seven, eight different prongs of what we're going to be doing as an agency to, to push back. And this ranges, again, from legislation, education, security, better data monitoring online, like working with the online tech platforms, like various, various prongs. And I'm hoping collectively we can lower levels. We won't eliminate anti-Semitism in the U.S., but we can lower the levels. Well, it sounds like you're very, very busy in this new job and that you are uniquely qualified for this job based on all the experience you had. So the AJC sort of publicized something you said on Twitter and sort of said, this is Holly Huffnagel. She's a committed Christian and AJC's new U.S. director for combating anti-Semitism. And there was like a lot of hate directed your way, I think because you're Christian. I mean, what what happened and what how did that feel? You know, it's funny that you asked, Stephanie, because this hate, it was again, yeah, there was a random quote by the former governor, Howard Dean, who said something. And then I think, if not now, picked it up and said something about how Christians can't lead this fight against anti-Semitism. We need them as allies, but they can't be leaders in this fight. And the irony of all of this Twitter storm that happened, it was on a Sunday. And I actually do take like Shabbat for me is on Sunday. And I really don't, I'm not online. I'm not on Twitter. I'm not checking things. So I really almost was absent to the vitriol that was happening on, on Sunday. But I think what happened was, I think, a lot of assumptions about, you know, who I was and maybe w the why, like, why am I combating anti-Semitism? And, you know, 
yes, I think my, I would say my understanding of who I am as a Christian plays a role when I look at Christian history. Like I entered this field of combating anti-Semitism through the lens of the Holocaust because I, I understood that the Holocaust didn't happen in a vacuum. It was the thousand plus years of Christian anti-Judaism that set those foundations. And I wanted to do something to to rectify that, to, to, to work to fix that. It didn't have anything to do with my, I, I did grow up evangelical. I mentioned, I, that was, might've been mentioned in one of the interviews, which might've sparked some alarms for some in the, the Jewish community. But my personal beliefs, which are, it's, it's interesting. I've, I've heard several people call, uh, you know, is she a premillennial dispensationalist? Does she want all the Jews to go to, to Israel for the end times to come? Is this why she's combating anti-Semitism? And I, I almost laugh at this because I don't believe actually any of that personally. So it's always funny to see what people assume that someone growing up a Christian might, might, might believe. You're like, I want them to go to the Auschwitz Museum and see the shoes that I cleaned there. Yes. And get educated. <laughs> exactly. So that was, it was almost funny for me. I mean, actually, it, that whole, whatever that was, that Twitter storm or whatever you call it, it shows how hard and challenging and complicated our work is in some ways, because you do, you do see the almost uninformed beliefs and assumptions that people can make about others. And I'm thinking, well, this is actually doing a very disservice to the fight against anti-Semitism. But AJC really supported me. I mean, it was they were funny. They're like, actually, you should just look at her credentials. Did you read what she's been doing in the past 10 years? In fact, my Christian faith never played a role in, in my professional career in the, the U.S. State Department, at the Holocaust Museum, which is where I was for six years prior to working at the State Department. I mean, people knew I was a Christian, but it wasn't a public thing. You know, faith can be a private matter. And it wasn't until working at a Jewish organization where all of a sudden it was this big identity issue. But I think, I mean, AJC is, I'm here because I'm like the right person for the job, not because of uh, I'm a Christian. And I think, and I really feel that. And I felt really supported by everyone at AJC because they were all texting me and writing to me, are you okay? It's like, we love you. We want you here. We need more non-Jews actually fighting anti-Semitism. So, but yes, that was what that was. And an interesting start to the, the position, but galvanized me to keep going. Well, it's interesting because I imagine you have relatives who are sort of like, wait, she does what? And then now to sort of from within the Jewish community to have people say, no, she's not the right person. I mean, you're like getting it on all sides. Meanwhile, you're fighting anti-Semitism, which is not like the easiest thing to do. It's so true. Yeah, my my family, my, my parents and the people who really know me, I mean, they've seen this. And my husband, especially like when we were dating 10, 12 years ago, he already knew I was interested in topics of the Holocaust. So he kind of knew what he was getting into. And now he also has probably been to, to Auschwitz more more times than, than he can count. But my immediate family understands and knows. And, you know, they, my dad's very involved now in going to different Jewish community events and reading on the Holocaust. He's been recently reading a book on, on Baptists. He, we grew, I grew up Baptist. Um, my, my grandfather was a, a, a Baptist minister from Mississippi, but he's now reading this book about the role of Baptists in the Holocaust and how there were Baptist networks that rescued Jews. There, there's negatives, of course, as well, but there's some really things to be proud about and some positive trends as well. But my broader family, I would argue, I don't think really know, you know what I do. And I, I do have a lot of relatives still in the South and, you know, but they're important conversation starters. And especially right now, I think in this election cycle, and there's just a lot of hyper emotion around a lot of things. So I can talk about it. You mentioned reconciliation earlier. I sort of wanted to talk to you about like the modern form of reconciliation, which I know Nick Cannon recently did sort of a meeting with AJC as part of his sort of like apology tour after saying whatever it was that he said. I mean, we're in this moment where like there's a lot of anti-Jewish sentiment being shared by celebrities. I mean, what is AJC's role in that? What do you, How do you see that? And is there sort of a line you can draw because these are mostly Christian or like non-Jewish celebrities. I mean, do you feel like you have sort of like an, a window into this? I hope so. And it's something that I'm, you know, developing. I think even AJC, as other organizations working on these, this issue in the past few years, have really recognized 
the importance of social media engagement and engaging influencers. <laughs> you know, in the sense that, you know, we have X hundreds of thousands of followers on Twitter, but we're still engaging the people that know us, already believe our message, maybe who hate us, but are still following what we say. But what about the audience beyond, right? And I think it's almost the people that are on the fence. I don't think we're going to ever, nor should we really try our energies to sway the, the far, far, far right or, you know, the, those who are so far gone. But what about the people that are kind of in the middle and they might go in one direction? How are we reaching them? And I do think one way to reach them is actually through these partnerships with whether it be influencers or even corporations or maybe even, you know, African-American organizations or Muslim organizations, like really doing that kind of coalition building work. And with the case of the celebrities, I mean, I know a lot have apologized. I think a couple of things. One, we need to see actions, follow those words. And I mean, we're seeing some actions with Nick Cannon. Even before we did the Public Advocacy Anywhere program, I met with Nick in Los Angeles, you know, 101, socially distanced. And, you know, I was very like, cautious of, of that conversation. But it was something I talked about not being Jewish and why this is a, an important fight. And from that conversation with him, and I think this is something that other, not just black celebrities, but like you know, white celebrities as well, don't know that anti-Semitism is not just Jew hatred. And I know sometimes there's a whole debate about, let's not use the word anti-Semitism, it's a racist, you know, claptrap or whatever, you know, whatever you want to call it. But it's not just Jew hatred, right? You know, it's, it's about these tropes about Jewish power and control and money. And it's got, there's a whole conspiratorial element, Jews being blamed for some alleged evil. Like, you know, people say, like, oh, I don't hate Jews, but yes, I believe in all these things. Well, that was kind of this conversation entry point for me where I was as a non-Jewish person was actually able to explain. It's not just about hating Jews. You can actually be have anti-Semitic, you know, beliefs. And it's not about the hatred. It's about these other elements. And, you know, Nick was telling me about how he grew up and hearing from educated sources and, re and his own reading. And, and Nick's very educated. He graduated from Howard University. He's getting his PhD in theology, you know, right now about the Rothschilds and about some of these tropes. And so... That's actually something that we have a lot of work to do on, is, is educating people on what anti-Semitism is. And I hope that as someone who's not Jewish, who maybe people might perceive as someone in a Jewish advocacy organization is going to have a, a bias of what anti-Semitism is, but maybe I can clarify those things. So that's where I hope my role would be um, as we continue to engage, and AJC is continuing to engage celebrities. We're it's something we're working on actually actively right now to have that dialogue and hopefully that they can then channel that message to their five point whatever million followers. Like they can reach so many more people than we can. I mean, it's so funny because we, we've sort of on the show been this idea that like you have to go, if you say bad things about Jews, you have to go like sit with an old rabbi and like be lectured. <laughs> I actually imagine your conversation with him was far more productive than anything like that because you could say, I actually know where you're coming from. And that's sort of my question. I mean, Westmont, that's sort of a very, very evangelical school. I mean, what were your sort of first understandings of Jews? Did you feel like you, you could understand that because you sort of heard a little bit of that? I had the, like, the fortunate opportunity of actually my best friend growing up. I grew up in Southern California, and there's a large Jewish population in Los Angeles. I grew up about 45 minutes north of Los Angeles in the Caneo Valley, a town called Thousand Oaks. And my best friend growing up was Jewish. And that really, in some ways, I mean, my first dance with a boy was at a bar mitzvah. I, I'm not kidding. Like, I was just it was like, I, I had, I think I had a certain upbringing in ways that many, you know, Christians like wouldn't have had. And it was just because he was my neighbor. You know, he was across the street from me. And, and so that really helped. In fact, I remember his, his golden retriever was named Latka. And I used to think from the age of like three to the age of six that I thought Latkas were golden retrievers. Um, so I, I had some, you know, kind of corrective, uh, you know, lens to, 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 to work through. But you know, I was fortunate in the sense I grew up in a Baptist church. I went to church multiple times a week, not just on Sundays, but there was the youth group very much involved. 
Judaism and Jews were not portrayed in a negative light in the sermons, in the liturgy, you know, in my in my church. And I think I was very fortunate in that regard as well. I think that the negative uses were the, with the words Pharisees or Sadducees, like in the New Testament, like that was kind of where maybe some negative pieces came in. But Westmont, you know, I was actually able to take Old Testament, New Testament courses. And the Westmont, and I, I should clarify this too, it's, it's a Christian liberal arts college. There are evangelicals who go there. It's a Protestant school, but I wouldn't say that it's, you know, evangelical. And the professors that taught us were very biblically learned, fluent in Hebrew. Like I should even say like the Hebrew Bible, because there is that element of supersessionism. We talk about Old Testament and New Testament, like what's what's old and what's new. And that's something that we all are also working on within Christianity. But it was uh, on this program I did. Westmont actually talked about these issues and talked about, you know, the history of, of Christian anti-Judaism. And I saw this firsthand when we traveled with, I was with 39 other students all Christians from all over the U.S., and we were learning these tough issues. And I'm very proud of that, actually, to have a school that's, you know, and that's actually why I wanted to go back. In the fall of 2019, I taught a whole entire course only on anti-Semitism. These students, they, what do they, they, don't, they don't even know what they got into. They come to my whole course and they sit down and they're like, I don't even know what anti-Semitism is. Like three of them had never met Jews before. You know, like they're like, <laughs> and they leave with this like a whole history and how it affects like our current policies and is, where Israel fits in and where, you know, Christianity fits in. And, but I wanted to give back in that sense because I do think it's so important to educate young Christians on, on these issues. So That's amazing. So where is your old neighbor? Does he like know where, where you are now? He must be so proud. What's so funny is we haven't spoken recently. I, you know, we're friends on social media. He actually lives like right near where I live in Santa Monica, California. Like I'm in Los Angeles right now. I'm, I'm going to be moving to Washington, D.C., which is where I lived for a long time. But I'm moving back. It's just pandemics are hard to move in. But right now we're, we actually live very close to each other. So, and I don't actually know if he knows that I'm working on these issues. I mean, he follows me, so he, he must see that there's a lot of... <laughs> well, he might be listening to this. Yes, he might be. <laughs> and we'll know that, like, a dog named Latka sent you on yes. this trajectory. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> Holly Huffnagel, thank you so much for all the work you're doing. Uh, we It's amazing, and we're, we're lucky to have you advocating for our community. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me as well. Take care. Mazel tovs. Liel, do you have a mazel tov this week? I have a huge mazel tov to the newest returnee home, the newest member of the tribe, the newest Jew, Yehoshaphat ben Avraham, who completed his conversion last week, went to the mikvah, and is no longer known as Amare Stodmeyer. Wow. Saved the payoff for last. Saved the payoff for last. Um, you know what's funny? Because I've been saying Amari's a better Jew than us for years, and now mm-hmm. he actually is, and so now we need to step up our game. My muzzle tub this week is to the more than 600 Jewish organizations and synagogues who took out a full-page ad in the New York Times saying unequivocally Black Lives Matter. Um, getting 600 Jews to agree on anything we know is like a big challenge, and like 600 Jewish organizations, even more so. So um, shouts to them for that important message. And considerably less important, but of personal import to me, um, I want to give a mazel tov to my old high school dean, Fred Seebeck, one of the original great bow tie wearers. And he, uh, I actually think, was the admissions officer who interviewed me when I applied to my high school, to the Loomis Chafee School back in 19... 19- Do you remember some of the questions? <laughs> what, is your, what are your strengths? What's your biggest strength? <laughs> Can you tie a bow tie? By the way, is it true that if you could tie a bow tie, you automatically get into any prep school in Connecticut that you choose to go to? Oh, absolutely. That's literally the only requirement? That's absolutely right. And then you're passed out of freshman English. 
Right. I feel like you've already, anything that class would have taught you, you already know. Fred Seebeck was a, a great teacher, a great man. I'm told a great swimming and water polo coach, although I did not know him in that context. And I wish him well in his retirement in Rhode Island. Also, a mazel tov to the teachers of my daughter's school, Ezra Academy, which started school on Tuesday and uh, has handled the pandemic with extraordinary aplomb and wisdom and grace throughout. So why don't I say to all the teachers out there at schools, public and private, a big mazel tov to you for doing what you do for right. our children. And, and for the next 10 days in which you will be open before inevitably shutting down, Good, good try there, guys. God is just delivering you everything you wanted. Homeschooling. Everything I want. Social distancing. A pool. Unorthodox brought to you by Tablet Magazine on the web at tabletmag.com. Send your thoughts to unorthodox at tabletmag.com or call us 914-570-4869. We have nothing to do in our basements, but listen to your voicemails and we have a world to win. Subscribe to our newsletter, bit.ly slash unorthodox podcast. Our show is produced by Josh Cross and Sarah Fred and Ader. Our assistant editor is Robert Scaramuccia. Our artwork is by Kurt Hoffman and our theme music is by Golem. Online, golemrocks.com. The mailbox theme is by Steve Barton and rabbinic supervision is by Rabbi Aaron Goldstein of the Northwood and Pinner Liberal Synagogue, whose staff wish him a happy birthday. We come to you from the shark-infested waters of New England to the redwood forests to wherever we are in your earbuds. But someday we will be together again. And in the meantime, shalom, friends. I'm not going to the one like in Short Hills. I don't want to do that one. No. We're, we're, the Short Hills Maccabi again. You're not You're not doing the one in Sharon, Massachusetts. That's not your your summer. The 100-meter dash to the mall. The hot topic hurdle race. The Jamba Juice Javelin. You're not I can allowed go to on. go in hot topic. <laughs>